Uh, we, in September of last year, we met on our ground, we dedicated our ground, and we said, Lord, help us do something on this ground to make a difference. You see, probably hundreds of people today wearing Difference Makers t-shirts. We began to hand those out that weekend, and we said, Lord, we want to be a church that makes a difference. And last fall through January of this year, we began to basically design a building, put together a building program, a building project that we said, Lord, if it's our time as a church now, a little over three and a half years old, if it's our time to build a building and really plant roots in this community that generations from now people can come and worship, then we want you to help us do something, but we're willing to step out if you will help us step out. So we, we put together a building schematic of, of what we needed at a minimum to be able to do church the way that we do church. And we spent a long time shaping that, months and months and months shaping that. And then we've, we kind of got into a sketch drawing of a building. We presented it to the city and they said, well, we want to know what it's going to look like from the outside. So we began to put together the outside of the building and now we're far enough into our project. I don't know if you saw the boards in the cafe or in the back of the auditorium, but we really now have a really good picture now that we're this far in the process of what our church will look like. We've got some slides, I think, from the, the front of the building. We've got, if you look closely, we've got some really cool cars. I think the Back to the Future car is over there, like in the right corner. So Marty McFly may show up when we, when we start our church. There's kind of the overview of phase one and what we'll do. And then they've got another angle of phase one. But we said in order for us to do this, that our church, a little church three years old, was going to have to raise a million dollars. And if this million dollars was going to be real pledges, then on First Fruits Sunday, Commitment Sunday, which was last Sunday, we would need to collect $350,000 in offering. This is what every capital campaign strategist we met with, every church planning coach we met with, every banker we said met with. They said, Christian, this is your dream goal. And they all said, we want to be real honest. I, I don't know that your church is at a place that you can make it yet. Uh, a church your age, your size... I mean, if everyone gives, you might get to a million dollars in pledges. But if the Commitment Sunday offering, you know, isn't high enough, then probably you don't know if you can trust those pledges. When they heard I was telling our church early in the process, if you don't feel led to give, don't give. It's a Christian, you can't do that. Unless everyone gives something, you're not going to make it. Your church is just not big enough. It's not old enough. And I said, this is what we feel like God has led us to do. So as a church, we march towards this $1 million pledge, this $350,000 commitment offering. And we knew that these numbers were going to be impossible without God moving in our midst. But I'll be honest with you, I was praying for more. Um, I went to a conference in August of last year, and they handed out these little conference notebooks to us to take notes in the conference. And on the front of the conference notebook was two verses, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And here is, I mean, three days before I started a 40-day season of prayer to pray whether or not we were supposed to launch this series, I was handed a notebook with these verses on the front. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So while we set goals as a church, I was, I was praying for more. I was asking for more. I was imagining more. And my prayer goals that have been written in my journal for a long time, I said, Lord, we know that if we get to a million and 350, you will have shown up. But God, I want you to show off. I don't want you to just show up. I want you to show off. So here's what I'm praying for. Lord, I'm praying that our pledges would be 1.25 million. And I'm praying that our first fruits offering would be a half million dollars. 
And God, everyone who does this for a living is telling me that's not possible. But with you, all things are possible. So that's what I was praying for. And sadly, or maybe not sadly, your prayers weren't answered. And my prayers weren't answered. Because when we added up all the totals that came in last week, our last pledge, which came in this morning at 6 a.m., our church has pledged nearly $1.5 million for this building project, and you should put your hands together for that. $1,486,000 has been pledged by our three-year-old church for this building. And we didn't hit a half million in First Fruits offerings. We hit $658,000 given in the offering last week. You should all stay. We should all stand and say thank you, Jesus, because this doesn't happen in a church our size, a church our age. Man, to God be the glory. Let's pray together before we sit down. God, we stand in awe of who you were. God, we ask you to show up and you showed off. We ask you to do the impossible, and you did more. Lord, you, you did so much that if we would have asked for it, we would have felt ashamed because we would have been greedy. You did so much that, Lord, if we would have imagined it, we'd have been foolish in the eyes of everyone. But God always does immeasurably more than anyone could ask or imagine when the glory goes to his church and to his son. So, God, today we say thank you. We thank you for showing up in our midst. We thank you for showing off in our midst. And, Lord... As we really put our hand to the plow of this project now, we pray that you'll help us do something. We pray that you'll help us make a difference. And God, we pray that you'll be with us as we lean in spiritually to what you've given us and help us carry to completion the task that you've started with us. And God, we ask all these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. amen. You may be seated. Danielle, grab me a water before you're seated real quick. Reach inside your bulletin because I want you to take notes today. Here's what we just saw happen this morning. At the, at the top of your bulletin, you're going to see this thought. Ordinary people in ordinary churches will do extraordinary things when they're connected to Jesus. That's what we've learned as we studied the book of Acts. Ordinary people in ordinary churches are going to do extraordinary things when they're connected to Jesus. And together, we are doing something. Our church, our little church, together, because everyone leaned in the way they knew how to lean in. Some gave, some prayed, many did both. Our church is doing something. And this is what was happening in the book of Acts. Lives were being changed. A community was being impacted. And everything was good from Acts 1 through the end of Acts chapter 4 until we get to Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, the church hits a difficult season. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 5, because together we're going to walk through this season with the book of Acts. If you don't have your Bible, our ushers have some that you can use. They have some that you can have. You can dial it up on your phone or your tablet. But if you want a paper Bible to read on your lap, this would be a good place to start in your Bible reading. If you need one, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, just put your name in this one and keep it. Uh, we'd love for you to have it. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began just like this. And when we left the church last week, we prayed last week that God would help us be the church like the church in Acts 4, 32 through 37. We prayed that God would help us be a church that had a spirit of unity, a church that had a spirit of generosity, a church that had a spirit of encouragement. And we ended our study last week looking at a man named Barnabas who, who was together with the church, 
He was generous with the church. His life encouraged people. And it said that he sold a piece of property he owned. He, he brought the money. He gave it to the church. He was encouraging people with the way he lived his life. But then we open Acts chapter 5. And everything changes quickly. And as we continue through the book of Acts, I want you to look at Acts 5 verses 1 through 16 with me. And just hang on to your seats. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and she died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. Now, I read this text for the first time last September, sitting in the Smoky Mountains. I go away for about two weeks a year, and I kind of plan six months of sermons at a time. So I, I already could tell you probably the three main points of what I'll preach on in July and August. And when I read this, I just started laughing. Because I knew where we were going to be as a church. I knew what Sunday it was going to be. And I read this and I started laughing. And I said, Lord, there is no way the Sunday after Commitment Sunday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a Bible story about people who died because they didn't fulfill their pledge. Like, Lord, that, that might scare some people. Like, that, that doesn't even make sense. There's no way after Commitment Sunday, we're going we're gonna to talk about people who struggled to, to fulfill their pledge and died. And I said, Lord, I'd like to preach on something different that day. I, I would like to, on that Sunday, um, tell the church how blessed they're going to be. I would like to, on that Sunday, talk about how prosperous our people are going to be because they're going to give. I would like to, on that Sunday, Lord, I'd, I'd like to do something else. And what I wanted to do, what I was asking God's permission to do, was to do something which in preaching terms is called proof texting. Proof texting is when, as a Christian, you go and find a verse that proves what you desire to teach. Proof texting has ruined theology in the church because you can find just about any verse you want to prove anything that you need to prove about a particular subject. You can make one sin look way worse than every other sin. You can, you can give blessing to yourself that really isn't there without a whole lot of other stuff. And I said, Lord, I, I would like to go find a verse that tells people how blessed they're going to be forgiven. I'd like to preach that one this week. Probably my most famous proof texting story happened to me in youth ministry. Because proof texting is you just, you want to live your life a certain way, so you go find a verse that gives you permission 
take it out of context and says, the Bible says this. I had a student come home with me from youth ministry one Wednesday night. And he sat down. He said, Christian, I want, I want to talk to you. And I said, what do you want to talk to me about? He said, Genesis 129. I said, what's Genesis 129 say? And he said, Christian, Genesis 129 says that God created every plant of the earth that has seeds in it, and they're all good for men. Do you believe the Bible? I'm like, sure, I believe the Bible. And he's like, well, doesn't that verse mean that I can smoke pot then? I swear to God, this is a real conversation. This is not a Brian Williams story. This is a real one, though he probably has one like this. So I said, no, that's, listen, that is not what that, that is not what that verse means. Now, that verse alone could make you think that, but that, that is not what that verse means. And we spent 30 minutes kind of wrestling back and forth over whether or not God created pot to, to be smoked. Um, and when we got to the end of this discussion, and I had convinced him that it's not God's will for you to smoke things with seeds in it, he said, uh, he said okay. And he pulled out of his backpack two little film canisters. Remember the old rolls of film, the little black canisters? And he said, well, then I should give you these. And I said, what's this? And he's like, it's my drugs. And I said, listen, I've told you guys you can't bring drugs to my house. Let me, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> One of the greatest things about youth ministry is there's this thought that you should give your youth pastor like all your stuff when you're in trouble. <laughs> At some Baptist camp years ago, a pastor said, you know, bring me your cigarettes. And so like kids... Kids bring their stuff, like they give their lives to Jesus, but their stuff to the youth pastor. So like, I can't tell you how many times I've stood in a field and emptied a case of beer, emptied a fifth of Jack Daniels or a bottle of Crown or wild turkey. And that makes some of you real sad and I'm still praying for you. But I can't tell you how many times, how many times it's like, you know, Christian, I'm going to quit drinking. So here's all my stuff. But there was a time in youth ministry where I began to minister to a lot of kids who, who smoke pot. Um, we had a kid in our youth ministry play football at a, at a school over in Kansas. And one Wednesday night, I challenged everyone to reach your friends. And he said, Christian, I think I've got a way for you to help me reach my friends. And you got to understand, since I was 20, like my life's desire has been to see people who don't know Jesus find Jesus. Like I, I want to hang out with people who don't know Jesus so I can figure out how, how to make a connection. And he said, I've got a group of friends. It was off season. He's a bunch of football buddies. He said, every Friday... Um, after school, we play football at this park. And he said, I think if you would come and play all-time quarterback and just hang out with us, they'd all start coming to our youth group. Will you come? And I said, man, I would love to. He said, I need to warn you. He's like, they all smoke pot. And I was like, that's all right. He's like, no, you don't understand. Like, they go and they all smoke, and then they play football. I just want you to know. And I said, I, that's, okay, that's fine. I'll be there. So that Friday afternoon, I pull into the school, and it's like a Snoop Dogg video. Like, I, like, like for shizzle. Like, I pull up, and like, there's, there's like smoke coming out of the cars. And I'm like, dear Lord, what in the world? And I begin to play football with all these potheads every Friday. They start coming to our youth ministry. They give their lives to Jesus. They feel like they need to give their drugs to me. So they, they would bring me their drugs. And at some point, with a two-year-old in the house, I'm like, y'all, y'all can't leave. Your, you can't bring your weed to my house. I've got a kid. If he would eat it, he eats everything he finds. Could be very bad. Might actually explain a little. I mean, who, who knows? <laughs> Not gone there before, but whatever. So he hands me his drugs. And I'm like, you can't bring your pot here. So I, I take the canisters. I walk out my front door. And he's like, no, Christian, no. And I take him and I just, I, I just emptied him in the yard. And he says, you shouldn't have done that. And I said, why? I said, why? He said, well, those were seeds. 
I said, so? He said, do you have a sprinkler system? I said, yeah. He said, you're going to grow marijuana in your front yard. I think I cut my grass like every three days that summer. That's when I developed my love of mowing the grass. I come in, Daniel, be like, how, how many times have you cut the grass this week? I, I don't know. Where's the Cheetos? I mean, like, I just, whoo, yum, I'm off to cut the grass again. Like, I, I wanted to bring... I wanted to bring a blessing message this Sunday. It's like, Lord, I want to find like a Joel Osteen verse. And I just want to tell our people, like they are the most blessed people in the world. Jeremiah 29, 11, that, that one. I know the plan, plans for good and for hope and a future. But that's not how you're supposed to teach the Bible. You're supposed to teach the Bible within the gospel context of scripture, which is this. It's preaching the truth of the Bible as it's properly presented within the narrative of the gospel, which means you're not supposed to just pull out one verse and use that one without everything around it because true biblical doctrine is a proper understanding and an application of biblical truth as a whole so whenever you find a verse that you think says one thing you need to make sure there's nothing between Genesis and Revelation that contradicts that because the Bible will present kind of unified picture on biblical teaching so when I looked at the context and the doctrine applied to the book of Acts I saw that the book of Acts did not have a Jeremiah 29, 11 moment. God's going to bless everything in your life after their great season of blessing. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 5 through 7, the church moves out of a season of incredible blessing, and it moves into a season of incredible spiritual battles, their story. And when, when I told God, God, I'd like to preach a different message, God said, you can make up your own thing or you can give the one that I've given. But Christian, I promise you, if you teach what I have put in scripture to be taught in the order that I've put it in scripture, your people in your church will be stronger. There is in Acts chapter five through seven internal spiritual battles where people begin to wrestle with things going on in their life spiritually, decisions they were making, feelings that they were having. And we're going to focus on that really for the next two months. We're calling a timeout in the book of Acts, and we're just going to begin to study the, the thought of spiritual battles, spiritual warfare, and how you and I can really grow strong spiritually when tension comes into our life in a series called Border War. And then after Easter, we're looking at four weeks in a series called Overwhelmed. How to just refine balance and joy in life. Because spiritual tension can, can create great stress on your life. We see a, a period of congregational spiritual battles. Where as the church grows, people begin to complain about changes that are happening and changes that aren't happening fast enough. And there's some congregational spiritual battles as things aren't going well enough. And then there's community spiritual battles where the church finds itself at odds against the people in the community, the very people that it's trying to reach. And when we look in the book of Acts, within the proper context of the book of Acts, we learn that seasons of spiritual blessing are often followed by seasons of spiritual warfare. And if, if we're not smart enough to study this a little bit, we're, we're going to be taken down by it. German theologian Martin Luther, one of the smartest men to ever study the Bible, said every time God builds a church, Satan builds a chapel next door. He said every time God is moving, like Satan is going to counter move. It's just the way it happens spiritually. So here's what we're learning. Here's what I want to help you understand. We can't avoid spiritual warfare. But what we learn from the book of Acts shows us that we can learn to endure it and we can learn to overcome it. And as a church moving through this incredible season of blessing, we want to be prepared to enter seasons of battles 
and we want to learn the realities of spiritual warfare. So when I looked at scripture through that lens of what God was trying to teach through the entire context of Acts 5, 6, and 7, here's what I learned. Acts chapter 5 is not a story about money at all. Actually, it has very little to do with money and giving. It's a story about a heart corrupted by spiritual warfare. It's not a story about money. Peter actually says you don't have to give anything. I love that he said that. Look at verses 3 in, the verse, in, in verse 4. It says, Peter said, to Ananias, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Then I love what he said in verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Listen, Peter was saying, Ananias, this is not about money. This was your money. It's not God's money. You didn't have to give any of it to God. If, if you didn't want to, it's not about money. This is about what's happening in your heart. This is about the spiritual struggle happening in your heart. And here's what we find in Acts chapter 5. In verse 16, it says people kept coming to church and people kept being healed spiritually, but within a community of supernatural blessing and miracles in Acts chapter 5, there were some individuals who were battling crippling spiritual warfare. They were struggling in their heart. They were struggling in their head. And what's so interesting, I went back this week and I saw, you know, who in the New Testament, where in the New Testament did people really talk about spiritual warfare and spiritual battle? And here are the New Testament voices on spiritual battles. Jesus taught a lot about it, obviously. But Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talked about it. James talked about it. And Jude talked about it. Now, if you want to put numbers by those names, Peter wrote two books of the New Testament. Paul 13, Matthew, Mark, both wrote one. Luke wrote two. John wrote five. James wrote one. Jude wrote one. Which means that every New Testament author, every New Testament author, and the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who he is, every New Testament author talked about the reality of spiritual battles. Every New Testament author talked about the realities of spiritual struggles which help us understand point number one today, we, we, you and I, cannot follow Jesus well without accepting the realities of spiritual warfare and discovering the truth about him. It's why it's so important, so critical this month. And I know many of you are going to be traveling for spring break. It's why you've got to go back and later podcast or listen online. It's why these four weeks are so crucial, this season between Celebration Sunday and Easter Sunday. It's why it's important to be educated because we can't go spiritually where God wants us to go if we don't accept the reality of spiritual warfare and discover how to deal with it. Do you know that Jesus' first ministry after his baptism was actually learning to resist spiritual warfare? It was the very first thing that he did. He was baptized, high point of his spiritual life, and then he had to struggle spiritually for the next 40 days. Mark 1, 9 through 13 presents it this way. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness... And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. We would like to think, I would like to think, I wanted to preach this morning that when you reach a, spirit, a spiritual pinnacle, you enter this season of like utopia that's unbelievable. But that's not what happened in the book of Acts. That's not what happened in, in Jesus' life. That's not really what happens in Scripture. If you just start out reading in Genesis 1, one of God's first 
ever warnings given to humanity was about the reality of spiritual battles that we face. Adam and Eve had two sons. Their names were Cain and Abel. They began to have a little spiritual struggle and God's spoken word into the life of Cain is something all of us have to be aware of in Genesis 4-7. God told Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God told one of the first human beings that ever lived that sin is always standing right outside your spiritual bedroom. And it wants to take you down. Like, you need to understand, sin is always around the next corner. It's crouching, tiding. Later on, Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 would say the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion and he's looking for someone to destroy. Jesus told Peter, Satan wants to tear your life apart. There's this thought spiritually that around every corner, sin is waiting and it would love to take us down if it could. So to deny the reality of spiritual warfare is to forever stunt our spiritual growth and development. To say that I'll never be tempted. To say that I'll never be discouraged. To say that I'll never have conflicting thoughts in my heart, in my head, is just going to leave you at a place that doesn't allow you to keep traveling forward spiritually. There's a lot of people in our church already from last week who are talking to me about the $3 story of blessing experiences that they're having. If you weren't here last week, that didn't make any sense to you. But if you were here, it's basically people who sacrificed and have already seen the rewards of those sacrifices return. But many others in our congregation have or will have or experience a season of spiritual battle. And we need to understand where that spiritual battle rages. Because when we look at point number two, we see that Ananias and Sapphira, they failed to protect their hearts and their heads from the attacks of Satan. They failed to, to protect their hearts and their heads from the attacks of Satan. So in two weeks, I'll teach through Ephesians chapter 6 what the Apostle Paul presents through the lens of a Roman soldier as the spiritual armor of God. And the two most critical pieces protect your heart and your head. The breastplate of righteousness protects your heart. The helmet of salvation. It's important in this season of our church's life that we have some people who understand how to protect their hearts in their heads. Look at Acts 5.3. We see the hearts and the heads of Ananias and Sapphira attacked. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it this Satan has so filled your heart? Now I want you to circle those words, filled your heart. The original title of our Bible study this morning was when Satan fills your heart. My staff thought that was a little cryptic. So they said, Christian, you should like, <clears throat> you should change that. But Ananias and Sapphira were, were a part of this church. Peter knew them by name. They were willing to sacrifice and give offerings, yet their heart was vulnerable to spiritual attack. Look, look at verse 4, the second half of verse 4. Peter said, what made you think of doing such a thing? Ananias, what, what, what's in your head? Who's in your head? What voice is rattling around in your head? Look at verse 9. Peter said to Sapphira, how could you conspire to test the Lord? That word conspire means to make up a plan. Ananias and Sapphira failed to protect their hearts and their heads from the spiritual attacks of Satan. And you need to understand the primary targets of spiritual warfare in our life are our hearts and our heads. What we feel, what we're thinking, the things running through our minds at a million miles an hour, or the way we feel when we walk through certain experiences 
We've got to learn how to navigate where the icebergs of spiritual warfare are sitting in our lives mentally and spiritually. So I want to give you three kind of helpful tips this morning. And then all month long, we're going to dive into this. So by the time we get to Easter Sunday, hopefully you'll be able to recognize for the rest of your life when you're facing a spiritual battle. And you'll be able to really process through that. Here's helpful tip number one according to scripture. Don't trust your feelings without passing them through the filter of the Holy Spirit and of Scripture. Don't trust your feelings when you're in a season of spiritual battle. Because Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things. And it's beyond cure and who can understand it? Your heart can lead you astray. Ananias' heart led him astray. And let me tell you how easy it is for your feelings to really kind of mesh, mess with you spiritually. Danielle and I are like many of you and that we try to manage our finances very, very well, um, very carefully. We, we made a pledge that it was going to take a lot of faith and a lot of blessing and just everything to go right to be able to fulfill uh, we, a few years ago, decided to drive used cars so we wouldn't have a car payment. We, we bought used cars and we paid them off. And like everything in life leading up to Commitment Sunday was going well. And then the Friday before Commitment Sunday, Danielle was on her way to the airport to pick me up. It had been snowing. She hit a patch of ice, smashed into a guardrail, flew across the highway, down a median into a sign, and she totaled her car. And I land Friday and, you know, text her and I'm like, hey, where, where you at? And she's like, I got in an accident. I'm okay but come get me. And you can't imagine how my heart began to flip me out spiritually. You know, as we're processing, we're seven days away now from giving this gift that we've been saving for a long time. We now are going to have to buy a car that's going to last us a year that we can pay for with our insurance settlement. Or we're going to have to get a car loan, which we have no money currently in our budget for. And I began, I, I began to really wrestle spiritually through what I was supposed to do. And I was, a little, I was a little disappointed that God had allowed that to happen to me, frankly. Because I thought, you know, Lord, you've been aware of this for a long time. And God, you know we've been saving this for a long time. And Lord, I cannot believe you would do this to me now. My heart, my feelings were hurt. Maybe, maybe you've been there. And it was hard to process it. I began to call mentors and friends and advisors, and I really, I'll be honest with you, I need some more unspiritual friends because I was hoping any of them would say, you need to take that money you've saved for the building and you need to buy a car because your, your budget can't afford it and you don't need that stress and, um, you know, it, it would be okay. And every one of them, because they were more spiritual than I was at the moment, because their, their heart wasn't being wrestled with spiritually, were like, listen, did God tell you to give that? Yes. Then you just need to give it and trust God. Every one of them said that. So I find myself four or five days before I'm going to give the largest offering I've ever given to a church, taking a loan for a car and giving that money to the church instead. And it was the most difficult check I've ever had to write in my entire life because of my feelings and what was going on. And I had to wrestle through that. I mean, man, I really had to wrestle through that. When we look at our heart, we have to learn in times of spiritual warfare, you can't trust your feelings without passing them through the Holy Spirit, without talking to Christian friends, with, without praying and seeing what God would want you to do and learning to trust. Secondly, 
Tip number two, when you're moving through a period of spiritual warfare, you can't listen to the lies of Satan about how unfair God is and what he's asking you to do. Because this was really the spirit probably of this three or four days in my life. It was like, really, God? I mean, really, God? When it started snowing last weekend, it was like, really, God? We wrecked our car, and now no one's going to come to church on Commitment Sunday. It was like, like the devil was in my ear saying the same thing that he said to Eve in the garden. Man, could you believe God would do this to you? How unfair is God that he would lead your church on all this and then let it snow on Commitment Sunday? How unfair is God, uh, is God that he would allow you to save up this money to make your first fruit offering and then have Danielle wreck her car? And I'm telling you, my head was just filled with, with spiritual battle and spiritual struggle. And I had to learn to process out the lies of Satan and listen to the truth of God. In John 8, here's what Jesus said about the devil. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he speaks, or when he, when he lies, he speaks in his native language, for he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. In Matthew 16, 23, responding to some poor advice, unspiritual advice from Peter, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me, and you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And man, I struggled last week. I was riding with Christian as we were test driving a car. Christian and Casey were in the car. And Christian, who I've been trying to eat breakfast with every Wednesday morning and just kind of mentor him along spiritually and open a window of spiritual conversation to have with him. He was sitting in the back of the car and he said, Dad? And I said, yeah. He said, do you think God, um, God did this with the car to test us spiritually to see if you'd give? And I've been, I've been thinking through that for a few days. And I thought, you know, it's going to be a real time to shape my son spiritually. And I said, God, Christian, no, I don't think God did this to test us. Because I, I, don't, think, I don't think God wrecked your mom's car. I don't think God puts people in difficult situations just for entertainment so he can see what they'll do. No, I don't think God did this. But it took me a lot to work through the lies of, can you believe the Lord would do this to you? It took me a lot to say, no, I don't believe God did this. And some of you are wrestling with the same truths. You know, I just made a pledge, and then this, no, I don't think God made your car break down. No, I don't think God made your kid have to get braces. No, I don't think your job, I don't think God does those things. So I said, no, Christian, I don't think God did this. However, God is going to, in this season, allow me to learn how to trust him. I don't think God did this to test us, but I think this has become a spiritual test of how much I trust God. But it took me three or four days to work through realizing God didn't do that. Don't blame God. Find, find out how to trust God in this scenario, in this situation. You and I are going to have to learn how to process out the lies in our head and push forward and listen to the truth of Scripture. And then tip number three, we can't allow the whispers of Satan in our head to be put into action in our life. It's one thing to process things. It's another thing to walk away from spiritual commitments or, or spiritual things that you're pressing into. We can't allow the whispers of Satan in our head to be put into action in our life. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
If this would be a word picture, if this was a game of Pictionary, Paul is literally saying every thought that comes into your head, you put it in jail before you act on it, and Jesus is the only one who can let it out of jail. Because a lot of your thoughts aren't of God. And, and the devil, guess what? The devil can't make your car fly off the road. The, the devil can't physically harm you without permission from God to do that. So what he'll do is he'll just put thoughts in your head. He'll put thoughts in your heart. And he'll try to, he'll try to with your feelings and with your thoughts, make you just veer away from trusting God or living for God a little bit. So Paul said, don't let your thoughts into action until you've put them in jail. And you've let Jesus say, yes, this one's true. No, this one's not true. You can process that one. That's just a lie. You got to throw it away. We have to learn how to process through these things. So you and I have to learn, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, to protect our hearts and our heads as we live life spiritually. And here's my final bit of advice today, and then we're going to get into it way more this month. If we can learn to stop, drop, and roll, if we can learn to stop, drop, and roll when we face spiritual battles, we can endure a season of testing, and we can come out the other side stronger. Because I told you, Acts 5, 6, and 7 sees the church go through a time of spiritual testing, spiritual struggle, spiritual battles. But in Acts chapter 8, when they press through that, man, the work of their ministry expands from outside Jerusalem to all over the Middle East. But they had to get through the time of testing first. So what do we do? We stop, drop, and we roll. We stop to process every thought and every feeling to be sure that Satan isn't in your heart and isn't in your head. We stop. With every thought, we stop and we say, hang on. Lord, is this from you or is this just, is this just me worrying again? Is this just a lie of Satan to get me off track? I had a conversation last week. I was walking into our church offices and one of our young gals who works in the nursery was there walking into the church offices as well. And we just made a big transition in our nursery and preschool area. Michelle Cummings, who's been serving in that area since our church started, is going to come and kind of begin helping me more with a lot of the pastoral things I'm doing. And she's got this incredible team who's going to begin leading back there. And one of those team members was walking in. So I said, hey, do you have a minute? And we went and sat down and I said, tell, tell me how you think this transition's going. And she just started crying. And I said, what's going on? And she said, I'm excited about this. I prayed for this. I wanted this. But she said, man, like the devil is really in my head and I'm struggling. And I said, I'm so glad to hear that. Not, not to hear that you're struggling, but to hear that you recognize that. Because that's very normal when you take on a new ministry position to struggle. I've been struggling, to be honest with you, because, I, because the devil gets in your head and your heart with our announcement today. I sat down with Jimmy Dodd, who's my pastoral coach, on Tuesday and told him the numbers that came back and he was just like blown away but he could tell I was a little down in my spirit and he said man what are you what are you worried about and I said I'm worried that if I announce this massive achievement to our church that it'll be it, it that it's so high that someone will feel like they don't have to give they'll be like man we're like we blew so far by it you know thank God we don't have to give somebody we're, we're gonna get there and he said, well, you were telling me six months ago that your biggest fear was announcing that you didn't get there and discouraging people. So you're telling me that you'd be worried whether or not you got there or you surpassed. Do you think that worry is from God or do you think maybe just the devil is in your head? And I said, you're right. The devil's probably my head. He said, tell, tell me what else you're worried about. So I'm worried that if we go way over in our pledge that everybody's going to want to spend more money and they're going to want to build a bigger building. 
Those guys at that back table running things that make noise and light up, they've already thought about how they can spend that extra half million. Cause that, that's, that's what they do. Like, man, we could do this. And that. I mean, like, they can spend it fast. And he's like, listen, just because you get more money doesn't mean you have to spend more money. You don't have to run your church like America runs their life. You don't have to spend more because you have more. And he said, you've got to get that out of your head. So I had to stop this week and say, all right, Lord, get, get, the, get the garbage out of my head. I had to stop this week and really process some thoughts. We have to stop sometimes. Then we've got to drop. Stop, drop, drop to your knees. At least metaphorically, sometimes you're going to be driving down the road or you're going to be sitting in your office and you're not going to be able to actually get on your knees. But if we can stop and pray, if we can stop and pray when, when we can tell that the devil is in our heart and the devil's in our head and we're just... We're being attacked spiritually. We can really gain. We can gain a lot of security. We're getting ready at the end of March as a church to enter a season uh, of 40 days of prayer. All of our small groups are going to teach through this, this prayer curriculum that Pastor Ryan has put together. And it's just incredible. I'm so excited for our church to pray together through this season of blessing that, will, that has to be followed by a season of difficulty. I'm excited that we're going to learn to pray. Why? Because look at what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says. Paul told the church of Philippi, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So prayer guards your what? Your heart and your mind. Satan attacks your heart and your mind. See how those two things have to go together? How in a season of spiritual battle, you have to learn to pray because it's the only way you can, you, you can protect what's being attacked. So we've got to stop. We've got to drop and pray, and then we've got to roll. What, what does roll mean? It means we've got to keep moving forward spiritually in faith. We can't stop what God has started. And this is what the church in Acts did. In Acts chapter 5, there was some internal conflict. In Acts chapter 6, there was organizational conflict. In Acts chapter 7, there was community conflict. And you know what they did? They just kept rolling. And in Acts chapter 8, they reached more than they ever thought they could reach. And this has to be our hope as a church. That ordinary people and ordinary churches can do and will do extraordinary things when they're connected to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came to give life, to give hope. And Jesus came specifically to help us overcome our battles with spiritual warfare. In John 10.10, Jesus speaking of Satan, he said this, The thief, Satan, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus said in John 16.33, In this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This season in our church is not about worrying about spiritual battles. It's just about learning about them. Not so we can avoid them, but so that we can endure them. Because six months ago, we asked God to show us as a church how alive we were. We asked God to take our pulse and to see if we were ready to go to the next level, if we were ready to do something spiritually that would make a difference in this community. And here's what we have found out six months later. The heartbeat of our spiritual family, those of us sitting here today, is way stronger than any of us could have imagined. The pulse of our church is stronger than any of us could have thought. And the unity and generosity and encouragement of our church are present within the people who go to our church. This means we're advancing spiritually in our community. And here's what we need to understand. Anytime one army advances, 
there's going to be return fire to kind of push you back from where you, you started. But we think there's more ground to take in the lives and the hearts and families of people in this community. We've got to learn as we advance a little closer to the enemy line spiritually how to fight a little better, how to be protected a little better, how to, how to get a little closer to Jesus. And the next month, we're going to learn how to do that. I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for leaning into this project with us. I am, I am utterly amazed, as has anybody been that I've told. The people that I've told, they've just started laughing. They literally, that has been their response. They're like, Christian, this just doesn't happen. To go 50% above your goal and almost double what you were anticipating on First Fruit Sunday, this does not happen unless God is doing something huge. So we as a church, we have to recognize, and it took all of us to get there, but we have to recognize that God is doing something with, with us in this community, for this community. So if we can learn now how, not just to give together, but to battle spiritually together and to keep moving forward and protect our hearts and our minds, man, there's no telling what God can do with our church in this community for our city. It's time for us to do something. It's time for us to keep moving forward so we can see people who are far from God become passionate Christians and make a difference in the world. We've taken a big step. There's a lot of steps still to come. But on Celebration Sunday, man, we celebrate what God has done in our midst. And I thank you from the very bottom of my heart. Let's pray together.